0: Hey there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about how to earn a great salary as a freelancer who writes, Then this is the episode for you because my next guest is only in his mid thirties and he's earning seven figures a year as a freelance direct response copywriter and entrepreneur. And he has taught thousands of people just like you how to do it too. In fact, it's part of his global mission to positively impact a billion people in the next 10 years. But before I introduce you to Stefan Georgi, I want to make sure that you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's newsletter that is chock-a-block with career advice, insights, and inspiration that I've gathered from the hundreds of amazing professionals like Stefan that I've interviewed over the years in dozens of different industries. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time the number four, coffee.org to sign up. Now, my drip coffee connoisseurs and copywriting lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is master copywriter Stefan Georgi, who's considered by many to be the very best, as in the number one copywriter, in the world. Since 2012, when Stefan broke into this field, he's helped his clients earn a whopping $700 million in sales. And he's actually developed a step-by-step methodology to help you level up your direct response copywriting. And it's called the RMBC method, which we're going to be digging into in just a few minutes. So stay tuned if you want to learn how Stefan went from getting paid $149 for the very first direct response letter he wrote to an astonishing $50,000 a letter today. Stefan is also the host of a terrific podcast called The Road to a Billion. Now you know why it's called Road to a Billion. It's a call-in radio style show podcast where he answers your questions on mindset, business ownership, scaling funnels, copywriting, freelancing, and pretty much whatever else you want. By the way, one of the best parts about copywriting is that it is a freelancer's dream. It's a field that's growing despite the unbelievable economic downturn due to the coronavirus. And it's something that you can also learn to do while you're online, stuck at home on one of Stefan's courses. So if you're interested in learning how to break into this field, check out the show notes for this episode to see if Stefan's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. That's where we dig into it. We're also going to include a link to Stefan's various courses, such as the Copy Accelerator that he co-founded with another copywriting beast, Justin Goff. And by the way, in this episode, we're going to learn a whole lot more about what direct response copywriting actually is and how to become successful in this field and maybe even in life. Stefan, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go?
1: I am. I am caffeinated and I am just so happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I am so excited to have this opportunity and I wanted to let you know that I succumbed to the Stefan Georgi copywriting magic after we did our Espresso Shots interview. As a matter of fact, I went because you had accepted my invitation to join your mailing list. Thank you very much. And in it, You like plant the seed. You give us like a taste of the RMBC method. And so I started reading that. And the next thing I know, Stefan, the next thing I know, I am forking over just shy of a thousand dollars to buy your course. So I am proof positive that what you do works. And now I'm so excited to dig into it with you. We're going to share, of course with our viewers and our listeners, but I just wanted to let you know, man, the shit you write works.
1: <laughs> well, I appreciate you letting me know. I, I did actually see I got the email alert for, you know, new customer and I saw your name and I, I was like, oh, that's, that's awesome. And yeah, it's, it's crazy how turns out that copywriting stuff can, can be effective. But yeah, I'm stoked you got it. I think you're going you're gonna to love it. And I'm excited to, to talk about it today as well.
0: Oh, my God. Well, I've also had so much fun preparing... To do this interview and watching the fantastic docu-series that you and Jude Charles, who's actually a documentarian and who I interviewed on the show, made with you. He directed it. And it takes viewers behind the scenes in your life. I mean, it's your personal life with you and your wife, Laura, and your daughter, Eden, and and then your work life. And it gets more into, especially in part three, what is driving you like not just to be the best copywriter, but like you want to be a really good human?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that the two go hand in hand. And I, I generally I believe in, in, I don't know, karma and what goes around, comes around and all that. And I just I just found like a couple years ago, I decided to start putting myself out there more and being more public because I've had success with various well, copywriting, obviously, and then um, I started different businesses that, that you know, grew to seven and eight figures and, and one of them did over 100 million in a year and all this stuff. And like, you know, so I had cool vanity metrics and stuff like that, but I decided to kind of share more and be more public. And I was very hesitant to do that because there's a whole issue of like, am I doing this for ego? Am I, you know, just like am I a narcissist for sharing? Like, you you know, you get kind of it's hard. At least it was for me. It was. And, and I'm kind of introverted. I've done like this personality test and i'm I'm the most extroverted of all the introverts but I am still an introvert and so you know just to put myself out there was tough but what I found is that as I began to really share stuff it was helping people and that the more people that I helped the better I felt and the more pleasure I got the more enjoyment I got even selfishly and I realized that even you know we'll talk about freelancing and mentorship and, and things of that nature but like when i talking, helping somebody to go from a job that they hated to freelance copywriting, and then they're, they're making, eventually they're making more than they made at their job, but they're doing it on their own terms and they have more freedom. Those kinds of things got me way more excited than, you know, getting paid $50,000 or, or having a business do $10 million or 30, whatever. I, I just was kind of surprised by that because even you know, like, like making, I I love making money. I'm not a, I don't know. I'm I'm still a capitalist.
0: You're not a communist. Yeah. I'm not a communist. Yeah.
1: (laughs) But, but it was like, that is cool. But, but yeah, just helping people making an impact just, just was the the feeling you get, you get addicted to that feeling. And so, yeah, I just want to make the world a better place, and, and I truly want to make a positive impact on the lives of as many people as possible. Hopefully, a billion people over the next ten years—that's that, the goal.
0: Well, I feel super unambitious because my mission at Time for Coffee is to empower one million—not billion—but you know, maybe I should up the ante a little bit to turn one million college students to turn their degrees into careers they'll love. So once I hit a million then let's go for 10. But I want, our listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm holding up a book right now for Stefan to see. It's called Personality Isn't Permanent by Dr. Benjamin Hardy. He's a PhD. And I know you're a reader, Stefan. So I highly recommend that you read this book because he digs into all the personality tests, basically, and says they're full of shit. In fact, I don't know which one you took, but the Myers-Briggs, apparently Myers and Briggs are a mother-daughter or were a mother-daughter who cooked it up in their kitchen, like basically just like, and they have no psychological background, no training Whatsoever. And so, all of us who've been going around saying I'm an R2, whatever, D2, whatever those letters mean, it's like not really relevant. And you can change your personality. So, that is really what he's getting at. And I wouldn't be surprised if all this pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, which is something you've been doing your whole life, isn't in fact making you more of an extrovert than what you were before. Just a thought.
1: Totally. No, I think that, I mean, I've not read that book and I definitely will. I am an, an avid reader. I, I agree. I think when, whenever I, if you talk to somebody and they immediately, it's like, I'm an INTJ, what about you? Like, okay, like, cool. You know, I, I've done all of them pretty much. And, and I did the 16 personalities. One is a popular one now because it's free. And I mean, I felt like it was fairly accurate in a lot of stuff and how it described me, at least now, right? So maybe it's, 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 some of them are helpful as a snapshot of like your current state, but I totally agree. I mean, I'm, I'm huge on on personal growth and development and changing. And I don't like the idea of anything being particularly static. I like dynamic things, including with your personality. And, and yeah, to your point, I mean, over the last couple of years, I remember the first time I, I spoke on stage at an event and I, I'm a fast talker anyway. Like for me, this is I'm intentionally talking pretty slow for me right now. I don't Thank know been that slow. But I remember the first time it was like I just a thousand words a minute, you know, and very, you know, uncomfortable. And now it's like you can put me on a stage in front of like a thousand people and I'm just like, hey, everyone, right? Like I just you get better and better because you get you get used to it. And so, yeah, I think, yeah, I do think you change. Absolutely.
0: So speaking of changing, I know you have told this story a bajillion times about how you fell into direct response copywriting. But I hope you don't mind telling it one more time because it is, The quintessential example, my dear listeners, of what I call the magic of life, the magic. And I'm not talking about the saw lady in half magic that is in Vegas, not far from where Stefan lives right now. It's a different kind of magic. It is fairy dust magic. And what I mean by that is you can't predict it. You can't like plan it out. You're not like following a recipe for how to have a successful life, how to do this, because there is no recipe you can follow. It's iterating and testing and trying and doing and letting life happen and putting yourself out there and being open so that when someone comes into your life, You lead with curiosity, as Stefan did, and suddenly it can change your life forever. So Stefan, you're in Vegas now, but we're going to rewind the clock about a decade or so, and you were playing poker with a buddy in Vegas, and this beautiful woman walks into the room, and what happens next?
1: Yeah. So this would be 2011 and I'll even do a quick back even further to give people even more context and especially for all the kind of college students and people out there. So at the my senior year of high school, 2004, I'm in San Diego and poker is this big craze. And I thought I was going to become maybe a professional poker player. So I played poker every day I went to the Indian casinos because you only had to be 18. I had learned how to play in 2003. And I bought all these books and like studied poker. So I was significantly better than most of the people there, even though I was so young. And I'd make about $200 a day playing poker, senior year of high school, you know, every now and then I'd lose, but I won the vast majority of the time. I was like not really paying taxes and probably should have, but I think it's past the statute of limitations. Cause you know, I'm like 18, making $200 a day while in high school. And was like, this is great. But I ended up Going to college at CU Boulder after high school, went for a semester. Did not attend classes at all. Found that I didn't have that structure I had before because instead of like I had a, a routine almost, I would go to school, go home, take a nap, drink a coffee, go to the Indian casino, play poker from six to nine thirty. You know, as soon as I got up a, a, above two hundred dollars, I left. If I lost two hundred dollars, I left. Most of the time, I went up, and I created like a second like um, like. A checking account. That was just for my poker money. I had, you know, like a like cat. It was great. I, I had structure and I, I, it was in a great place in my life. But I kind of lost that structure and I went to Boulder. And you know, I was like just getting stoned in a dorm room and playing video games and not. And so I dropped out. My parents were furious because they were like, oh, my God, You know, my mom comes from this like immigrant Italian immigrant family where an education, you know, is the most important thing ever. And, and here I am dropping out after a semester and worked in a movie theater for the next, you know, I don't know, six months or a year. And which was kind of depressing, right? So like, you know, there you are, it's a Friday night, you see kids on on dates, and you're making popcorn and the oil's like coming out of the popcorn machine and hitting you on the face and stuff, and it just sucked. And anyway, got involved in a, a music company startup that totally failed. Like we, we you know, raised money, bombed, and along the way I kinda of realized I missed learning. So I went back to junior college and then two years in junior college, transferred to the University of West Florida, which is in Pensacola, Florida, and really enjoyed that. Found myself, became a philosophy major, realized I loved learning, ended up on like the Dean's list, graduated like, you know, magna cum laude, all that stuff. Should have been on the President's list, but one Dr. Howard, one professor kind of screwed me and gave me an A minus 7A and that literally was a difference. So I'm still pissed about that all these years later. Not that it matters, but it was kind of, it was a a jerk move from him because I'd gone for like a death in the family and he like, he like penalized me for it or whatever, but it's okay. Anyway, All that happens after college, I'm bouncing around, though not finding any jobs I like, working in like a call center, working door to door in political campaigns, doing all this different stuff. And then eventually I I find my way to Marble Falls, Texas, where I'm basically an outdoor ed instructor teaching kids about nature and science and things like that. And I thought I actually really enjoyed it. I'm like, I was making $200 a week, I was in a double wide trailer with. I had a roommate like someone shared a room in the trailer and then we had like five or six other trailer mates in the small little trailer but food was provided during the week we got to eat like the camp food because basically it was the school was on this this like summer camp property and uh so you know wasn't making a lot of money but I had room and board and food and just was in nature teaching kids it was super fulfilling I was writing I wrote like a novel that sucks but I wrote like a novel while I was there all this cool stuff and I'm like this is what I'm going to do. So I actually applied to to be a, a summer camp counselor after that, and I figured I'd go back to this outdoor school. And then in like May of 2011, I got this call that my dad had cancer, and it was out of nowhere. And it was it was stage four, like liver cancer, really bad, you know, prognosis. And so instead of going in and doing the summer camp in Florida, I went back home to to San Diego, and then I was there with my dad for about four months. He died in October of 2011, and after that, I decided to. I want to blow off steam basically. Right. So about a month after he died, I went to Vegas with a friend and we're there. I've got barely any money. You know, we stay at the circus circus, which was like a shithole then. And is more of a shithole. Now, you know, it was like $19 a night or something like that. And anyway, so we're playing poker on, on the last night we're there. Actually the last day we're there and uh, yeah. And I'm there at this poker table and a girl walks into the room and I'm like, man, this girl is Really beautiful. Just when of was like out of a movie, you see this person, there's an instant attraction. You just like, you just kind of know, you, you just feel it. And I, I joked to the table right away. I was like, I hope she gets seated at our table. Cause in a poker room, you don't get to go in and just walk up to a table. You go see like a host and then you tell the host what game you want to play. And they look at what tables have open seats and they're trying to keep the tables balanced. And so they'll, they'll tell you what table to go to. And this was like, poker was still pretty big at this point. There were probably honestly, 40 or 50 active tables. So, you know, even though I noticed this girl, the chances of her being seated at my table were pretty like slim, right? It's like one in 40, one in 50, whatever it is, but she did it. and which was amazing. And so we're sitting there playing poker. I'm just fo- trying to focus on poker, but I uh, keep looking at her kind of, and somebody at the table asked her, you know, I, I, for whatever reason, I not know how it came up. They're like, what do you do for a living? And she said, I'm a writer. And and I wanted to talk to her. Because I'm like, I like to write, you know, so this is my opportunity so I'm like, oh, what kind of writer? And she said, I'm a copywriter. And then I was like, wow, copywriting, that is so cool. And I pulled out my, my iPhone one or whatever I had, and I put it under the poker table. I'm Googling what's a copywriter because I had no idea. And I um, love it. That, was, that was, yeah, that was my, my intro, kind of my intro to copywriting. I didn't 100% understand what I had read on Google, but it was enough like, okay, she writes ads kind of. So that was, that's how I discovered copywriting.
0: So there's more to the story. We'll get to that in a minute. But to give our listeners and our viewers a little bit of a palate cleanser here in the middle of of this love story. What are these sales letters, the copywriting that direct response copywriters are producing? What are they? I know we all see them many times, but just to kind of clarify things for our listeners and our viewers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, a copywriter is essentially a writer of ads. But there's all types of ads. There's TV ads, there's radio ads, there's newspaper ads, and there's online ads. And then online there's, you know, Facebook advertisements, there's native advertisements. So, again, if you're on not again, but if you're on weather.com or Forbes and you see the you know, sponsored content and it's, you know, Tommy Chong says throughout your CBD or whatever it is and you click on it, and then you go to like a little kind of page that sort of feels like an article. It says "advertorial" up at the top or something like that. Somebody wrote that. That's copy. The ad, the ad was copy. The advertorial is copy. And then you end up on a, a web page where there's either like a video where you're pressing the button and there's like this hour long video, or it could be a really long kind of letter. And it's it's like telling you a story. It's making big promises and, and promising to, to solve your pain points and solutions. And so that's like a sales letter, whether it's a video sales letter or a text sales letter, it's really like a script, like an infomercial script. And sometimes, again, if, it, if it's a written one, then it's just like a long formatted letter to the prospective customer. And it's, it's one of those crazy things because it's like a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry, direct response. And I mean, but the sales letters, you know, these sales letters generate billions and billions of dollars a year. But if you're not, like nobody really in the mainstream ever talks about them, you know, you don't, you don't see... People talking about sales letters on CNN or you don't read about them in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. So it's sort of this really kind of crazy world where it's this huge, highly lucrative thing, but like in companies that are crushing with it, writers who are making a fortune with it, but it's very much still kind of on the fringes, which is very fascinating to me.
0: Yeah. It's like hidden in plain view.
1: Yeah. Because to your point, just real quick, I mean, I I can't tell you how many times Like, I've talked to a friend, or, and and be like, oh, my grandparents, like, um, we talked about Dr. Gundry during the espresso shots. And, you know, it's like, one of my best friends, his grandparents, he's at their house and they have, like, vital reds from Dr. Gundry. Like, oh, there's this doctor and he made this discovery. And, like, they're telling my friend, and he's like, you know, like, this is our whole world. Like, yeah, like, I I know all about this. And they're like, Like, what was the
0: copy that probably got them to buy it? Yeah, yeah, it's
1: it's so interesting to me. But it's like, a lot of our, our, you know, our parents or us or whoever have, have, have bought from these types of things before, but we don't kind of realize it almost unaware. In in
0: so who is responsible, Stefan, for those little teaser ads that you'll see at the bottom of different websites, like all those little boxes. And it says like, learn why eyeballs cure cancer or why, you know, squid is the most romantic of all fishes or <laughs> who, who does that?
1: yeah i mean it's it's copywriters it's either in-house people some for some you know some cases or they're they're freelancers but yeah it's all all copywriters writing that stuff
0: and why are some of those sales letters so damn long I, i mean i get the psychological component but i mean even with me i was sold i was sold on what you were selling me with RMBC, and yet I was like, where the fuck is the buy now button? And I'm scrolling and I'm scrolling and I'm I'm like, I know it's here. So why? Why are they so long?
1: So the way I would look at this is there's like warm traffic, you know, warm prospects and cold prospects. And to be fair, you were a little bit warm because you had already interviewed me. You were bought into me a little bit. You kind of knew. And then when you started reading and it looked cool and legit, you saw the testimonials, you saw the kind of promises I was making about what this product, the RBC method will do for you. It didn't take as much convincing for you. But if you think about it from the perspective of a, a really, truly cold person, I, I kind of I, I liken it almost to that. There's the the famous movie like The Gods Must Be Crazy about. Oh, I like, love this- that right? And there's like the uncontacted tribe and like the Coke bottle that falls from the sky. And it's like, what is this? And I almost think that your ads are like that Coke bottle falling from the sky. I mean, you have to think about it. Somebody's like on Facebook spying on their high school crush, you know, at work when they should be working or they're, you know, they're, they're trying to argue about politics and, you know, but they see an ad that, that's so interesting, they can't help but click on it. But even then, as soon as they get to that page, they're like, all right, well, what is this about? And if it's not, if you're not captivated right away, then they're not going to keep reading. But even then, you have to take them on a journey. You don't have to, but but it's, it's very effective to take them on a journey. Because if it's just like they go from the ad to like, hey, product, buy now. There's certain products where this, you know, you can be more direct. It's like a t-shirt. You don't need to tell like a, a five, seven thousand word story about a t-shirt, right? It just it doesn't make sense. But you know, for something like a health supplement or an educational program, like. One of the guys in my mastermind, uh, Jay, runs Credit Secrets and they do, I don't know, like 50 million plus a year. They had Larry King actually is one of their spokespeople who, you know, obviously passed away recently. But, you know, their whole thing is like it's a whole guide for how to improve your credit score. And it's an awesome product. I mean, they have a Facebook group and um, I've been there just because I'm friends with him. And you just see people like who just are turning their credit scores around. They're getting houses, they're getting cars. It's just a really awesome product. But even then, it's like if somebody comes in and you're like, hey, buy this book and improve your credit score. You're kind of like skeptical, right? There's a skepticism. And so we really want to take them on a journey. We want to like to show empathy, show that we really understand their pain point, what they're suffering with, what they're struggling with right now. We want to promise a solution, but then we also want to build rapport um, you know, create almost an, an empathetic like kind of relationship where we like, we tell a story like, hey, I, you know, me, I used to be like you, I used to be in pain or whoever the spokesperson is, you know, used to be in the same boat or they knew somebody who was like you and in pain. And here's how they solved it. Because we just respond to storytelling. Um, we respond to like the hero's journey, which is from, you know, Joseph Campbell uh, coined the term. And, it, it, you know, he basically you look all the way back to the time of like the Odyssey by Homer and the Iliad and then go all the way up to present times with my favorite example is Moana. The Pixar movie Moana is a textbook hero's journey. If you've never seen Moana, it's it's Love the most like movie. it's like a raw me too. And it's, it's like just straight up hero's journey, which is essentially this idea of it's like a structure for stories. And it's, it's a structure that's resonated with us since like the beginning of time. And people, it works. So even our marketing and and the long form, so longer types of, of sales letters, we're really trying to take people on this journey from a state of, you know, a call to call to arms, a call to adventure. To that someone was in pain. They started looking for solutions. Not everything worked. In fact, they were frustrated. Then they met some sensei or they, they found some you know, breakthrough that seemed promising. And they started to explore that and find like, the real reason why they were struggling. And it had nothing to do with this, this or this. It was something new, a new discovery. Uh, but even then, there were setbacks. Like, How do I bring this to the public? How do I package it up? How do I create this product? And you know, through trials and tribulations, they are able to actually create the perfect product which we're now introducing you to today. Here's what you actually get with the product because you have to make sure people understand the features and benefits of the product. And then we get to like the buy now. But if you bring people on that journey, then they've truly, by the time you ask for the sale, they're educated, they're informed, but they're also really emotionally connected to you and the product. Whereas if you just sort of ask for the sale right away, people might buy it, but there's no emotional connection to it. And the emotional connection is important. Because what you'll find is if you have the buy now button after the first 200 words of like a 5,000 word thing, you'll get a ton of clicks. But the actual people who go to the checkout page, the next page and convert into customers will be a lot lower than if you were to have the button after 3,000 words, which seems crazy. But because the people who once they've, if they've gone that far, they're educated about the product they know about, it, they're emotionally connected. And when they actually buy, they have a very strong buyer intent. So then they actually get to the checkout page and put in their credit card and buy. So and it's a very long winded way of explaining it. But that that's really the rationale behind it. And it, you know, it works shockingly well and, and it's continued to work. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'm raising my hand for all of the all of those listeners here. Yeah, I bought in. Is there a type of person, in your opinion, Stefan, that makes for a great copywriter. In our Espresso Shots episode, you shared that in your experience, in your own personal experience, and then knowing other great copywriters out there, you all have shared experiences in common, and whether that's being a door-to-door salesman or having worked in a call center, that type of thing. So what do you think?
1: Yeah, I I have seen people from all walks of life who, who have had success, you know, Again, from, from engineers and, and people in kind of math and science backgrounds to very creative types. I think that having a little bit of like a rebel spirit tends to be beneficial, being a little bit contrarian, being a little bit anti-status quo. You know why? I think that if you're more open to sort of all like... You're better a better storyteller, I guess. Right. If you're if you just like if every time you see like, like a, a boilerplate explanation of something in this world and you say, OK, that, you know, tends to not be like that, that's not great from a copy perspective. But if you like if you really pry deeper, if you want to know like the truth, if you want to get kind of gritty little details, those sorts of things, then and you can then translate that into writing that tends to give you a leg up because a lot of great writing is in the details as well it's actually it's finding the things that other people overlook like for me if i'm doing research for for a product and i love going down rabbit holes and i've, I've done this so many times where you see maybe you're on wikipedia just reading about like an ingredient for a health supplement and there's like some throwaway line about like this happened for for one where it was this like german a female german like scientist in the 1930s who basically looked at a plant-based insulin. So I was for a blood sugar supplement. We weren't trying to say you can replace insulin or anything like that, but basically I saw this like this, this mention of this and I'm like, well, who the hell is this scientist? Like it's like a throwaway line but I clicked on it. And then there's this woman who was like one of like the first like tenured female scientists in like Germany in the 1920s. And she fled during like the Nazi, you know, regime. And then she was like overseas. But then after she ended up like uh, writing, publishing over 250 scientific papers and like she did all this incredible. Re- so then I used a bunch of that stuff in the story I told, right. But it was like a throwaway line in this Wikipedia entry about something. If I hadn't clicked on it, I wouldn't have gotten this incredible story. So I think you know, having curiosity and wanting to kind of go deeper. And and I think that's really important. I know I kind of said two things the contrarian, because I don't know, it just seems like rebels tend to do like tend to be good copywriters. So there's, there's some kind of like streak of kind of counterculture and, and within copy, but also then the other part of it is having curiosity and and wanting to learn, like loving to learn.
0: Love it. Love it. So you've already kind of, given us an example of the research piece, but can you break down for us what makes really good DR copy?
1: Yeah, there's, there's definitely, you know, several elements to it. I mean, one is doing the research for sure, because in going a little bit deep, like the, the two things I talk about in the RMBC method and just in general is I love going to forums and I love looking at Amazon reviews. Forums, so for
0: Andy, I'm sorry, like forums yeah, being like um,
1: just like like ch- web forums, kind of like like if you look at like chat, they're like chat groups almost like there's like conversation threads kind of like Reddit. Reddit actually would, would almost count. But if you sort of look at like discussion groups. Right. But online and, and if you they exist for pretty much anything you're going to write for, whether it's like real estate or health and fitness or investing, you know, there's like a forum for everything. And if you go there and see these discussion threads and, and kind of like these like rooms, right. Where people are talking, you just find it's like where your target market is hanging out. And then they're, Discussing the issues that, that you're trying to help them solve. They're sharing the solutions that they've already tried and they're talking about what they like and don't like about those solutions. They're sharing and everyone overshares. I mean, the big thing with with the reason I like forums and, and kind of online like chat, you know, discussion groups is because nobody gives a straightforward answer. Like my you know, my favorite example, and this is kind of when I realized how valuable forums are, is, is we have two cats and one of our cats was had some Health issue. This is like you know years ago, and like I got Googled like I don't know what it's like cat like poop green or whatever it was, right? I don't like, and, and I got this like forum, but like what you found is all these cat people. It wasn't just like, oh, yeah, it's probably your cat's digestion. Like, was They, they just digested the food too fast, right? That's like probably what it was. But it was like, I have two cats. My Fluffy is seven and a real rascal. While, well, you know, like Buttons is only three and is an adventurous scamp. But like sometimes when I come home, like Fluffy is doing this and Buttons is doing that. And I've spent all this money on all these toys. Fluffy's favorite toy is this. you know. One and, and they're just going on and on and on. At the very end, there's like, oh, and by the way, yeah, probably digestion issues. You know, but like the people just overshare like crazy. And so if I'm really trying to understand my market and I have all these people oversharing, but again, weight loss, people are telling their stories or struggles or hopes or dreams, their frustrations their failures. They're like everything investing. Why am I investing? I want a better life. Like when I, I grew up poor and then, you know, now I'm, I have a job, but I've just never feel like it's enough. And I've got this pressure. I mean, people are just sharing so much. So i love go into forums and I love kind of, I actually will copy and paste interesting Kind of nuggets from those forums and put them into a different document because then when i'm writing copy i can be like hey does it ever feel like pace and I'm, I'm literally like stealing my prospects language and then repeating it back to them and if you want to talk about building rapport and connection it's like i'm i'm talking to them in their own words like their actual own words you know it's it's almost unfair it's almost a little bit maniacal but it's to a good end which so is hope you know hopefully you're ready for uh, great clients and incredible products and you're trying to get them into people's hands so that It can help change your
0: life. So, yeah. So actually on that, because you are pulling from like somebody, the thread that is about that particular topic and you're pulling from a real person's voice. How do you know that that one person's perspective will resonate with hundreds or thousands of others?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll go through a lot of the forum kind of discussions and, and threads, and I look for the commonalities. So really, that, that's so well, two things. So one is like, okay, if you if when you go in there and you can see a list of all the the posts, right? There's there's like all the different discussion threads, and I will. You can usually sort by replies. So if you when you, once I do my replies, you'll see which threads have the most engagement. And that's generally a sign. So if like, right, if somebody, cause if you do it by views, you might find that what would actually be a great ad. If it's like, you know, my weight loss horror story, like why I want to give up. And that might have, you know, 10,000 views, but then there's only one or two replies. And you're like, well, that could be an interesting ad, you know, like, Hey, my weight loss horror story, why I want to give up. And you're like, cool. Now I've, now I've got an ad, but, but that doesn't mean it necessarily the actual content, the actual posting wasn't something that really got people triggered and, Engaged and involved. But if you go to replies and you see that something maybe has 3,000 views, but 300 replies, you're like, oh, okay, this seems to really resonate with everybody on this forum. And then as you go through and people are just saying the same thing in different language, but they're saying it like again and again and again. And there's these commonalities that are happening both within people's replies in the single thread, but also if the same topic keeps coming up again and again and again and in different forums, that's generally the kind of litmus test where. You see, okay, the market is continuously talking about this. This keeps coming up. So now I know that this is something that, you know, has a very high probability of resonating with, you know, my target market when I write this sales copy.
0: Got it. Got it. Thank you for that. So can you kind of on the flip side of things, talk about what is the most common mistake that new copywriters tend to make so that we can prevent that from happening?
1: I think that it is talking, trying to talk to the brain first instead of the heart. I think with good copy, you speak to the heart first and the brain second. Another way of of looking at that is that you speak emotionally and then you go to logic. I think that the mistake people make when writing is beyond being too formal because they feel like they're trying to write like a school paper, which you're not. Right. You should be extremely conversational. And then you want to capture the emotion, the, the, the frustrations, the hopes, the dreams, things like that. A lot of writers early on, especially come in and, and the start of a question like, do you struggle with, you know, high blood pressure and you just feel fed up? And it's like it sounds like a, like a radio ad. But people, as soon as you ask a question like that, it feels like an advertisement. You don't want it to feel like an advertisement. But if you tell a story and you're like, you know, there I was like sitting on the cold, like a cold table at my doctor's office. As he told me, I'd be getting my seventh medication in like less than a month. Like when was this going to end? I felt like a rab lat and all I wanted was to, you know, stick around for the next 10 years so I could see my daughter graduate high school. And if you start off like that story, right, it's a much more interesting and compelling story, but people will be very like the, did you know, but they'll also go with stats and be like, Hey, do you struggle with high blood pressure? If so, you're not alone. Like, you know, new studies show that over 60% of Americans are you know worried about hypertension. And even worse, like the CDC says that blah, blah, blah. And the reason that that's a mistake, right, it's boring. But it's also like if I have high blood pressure, I don't care about everybody else. I don't care about stats, right? I care about myself. And I care about my, my fears. My fear is like, am I going to be around in 10 years? Am I going to have to go on more medications? Am I going to have to like, you know, make these crazy life changes? Am I going to live like a, and so speaking to the heart, telling a story and then not trying to go to statistics and things. I think you can use stats in your sales copy, but generally they're I push them way further down because you make, make it personal, right? It should be personal, not impersonal. And so that's a huge thing as well.
0: So let's get into the RMBC methodology. We've already talked about the research, which is super, super important, which is the R. Right. What is the MBC part of this methodology, which is all about streamlining the copywriting process. And there was a reason that you had to create this whole process in the first place.
1: Yeah. So I mean, the reason I had to create it is I kind of uh, going back to that that, that random chance and, and things like that, almost, I got hired off of a forum, the same forum where I had, I had been hired for my very first sales letter and got paid $149. And I was charging maybe $497 per letter at that time. And somebody hired me and he basically said, hey, I'm going to pay you $997, just make it really good. And so that's like double my rate. So to me, I'm like, oh my, you know, oh my God, like this is like amazing. So I, I worked really hard. And he also was like, by the way, and if you want to talk about it and you need help, like developing your ideas and stuff like that, you know, here's my, my Skype, we can talk on Skype or whatever. And honestly, like I, when clients do that, a lot of times you're like, uh, like today, I don't really want that most of the time because it can feel like they're trying to micromanage or they're, it's more work, but I'm like, this guy just paid me double what anybody has ever paid me before. So I should probably do it. And the guy ended up being really helpful. He helped me to, to kind of learn a lot about copywriting. What I wrote for him did really well. And he ended up going to accompanying the survival space. So they were doing like stuff for like preppers, like like do-it-yourself home aquaponics where you create like, you know, a garden and there's like a fish tank and the water from the fish tank goes to the garden and then the soil filters through the water, which goes back to the fish tank. And it was this really cool product. They, they did tens of millions of dollars selling this guide for how to build your own home aquaponics system. And, and so I was writing for them and, and it was really fun. And he ended up leaving that that company and going into like the alternative health space, so guys on how to naturally manage your blood sugar, how to you know lose weight without pills, you know all this kind of stuff. And because we had a relationship, he was like, you know, you want to come along, and I I did. But the crazy thing was this guy really he was really a believer in that good copy is pretty formulaic. That you know he's like if you look at the structure of all of these kind of sales letters, they sort of all have the same structure, and it shouldn't really be that hard. So you know. I think you probably write like a sales letter a day. And if you know what most people in, in the very, the A-list high level people, copywriters, you know, they, it's like four to eight weeks normally. And you know, this guy's like, oh, what do you need four weeks for? Like you can write this in it, and I was like, you know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And, but their whole model was, the health publishing company was to do like a blockbuster type model, like a Hollywood model, where they want to put out a, just a ton of, of guides and products. And they assume that a couple, every 10, two or three might do really well. A couple will be okay, profitable, but not crazy. A couple might be break even, a couple will lose, and a couple will just be complete, does it, that don't sell anything at all. And so he was kind of like, all right, well, here's the deal. If you you know can do four of these letters a month for me, which is already a, a lot, right, for most writers, but you, know, you get $1,000 per letter. If you can do eight per month, you'll get $2,000 per letter. And if you can do 12 a month, you'll get $4,000 per letter. So that's a crazy amount of letters, but suddenly this is this op- I never made more than, I don't know, maybe five or $6,000 in a month, you know? And suddenly I have an opportunity to make $48,000 in a single month. Plus, there was some other stuff where I could like write emails for them and, and like uh, all this other stuff. So basically, I can make up to like $80,000 in a month.
0: But again, this is, I mean, think about that. You were talking about, yeah, crazy um, money,
1: crazy, yeah. right. You know, like you're, 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 I mean, God, I mean, like you're, you're massive, massive, like more than 10 X scene, like you're, you know, like fifteen xing your your income basically right and so I was like oh my god this is like a life changing opportunity of course and just totally lucky right I mean my, my copy was was good I was I was dedicated focused on becoming the best I, I was studying I was I was working hard I I put in the work to be in the position for that opportunity but I also was lucky just to get that opportunity I mean who would have known that some guy hiring me off a forum this is right? magic this is, the, is magic. the magic that
0: I'm talking about and we haven't even closed the loop yet. On, I know <laughs> on the earlier story, which we will.
1: Yes. Yeah, than we do. So basically I'm like, man, how do I how do I do that? How do I write 12 letters a month? I mean, that's crazy, right? And so that's where I kind of came up with the RMBC method, because I, I had to create like an assembly line type of process for, for copywriting. How do I put take these pieces and sort of assemble them together? And so I started looking at like, well, what do I do when I'm writing copy already? What seems to work? And The first thing was research. I had to understand my market, where they were at, what they liked about existing products, what they didn't like, what their hopes and dreams were, what their pain pains were, their victories their failures. I needed to really get inside their head. And that's so important. That's like one on one. If you're for all marketing, right, not just copyright, you need to understand on a deep level who you're speaking to or you're never going to effectively communicate with them. So it's research. And then the next thing I kind of thought about was Okay, and then as I'm I'm am selling a product to them, but you've always got to differentiate it. And you know, this the this same person's mentor had kind of talked to me about this idea of unique mechanisms before, and what a unique mechanism is, like the unique way that your your product works. That's kind of the way that, that he had shared it with me, and that's sort of what was already out there. It was like you know, it's like almost a unique value proposition, unique selling proposition. But the one thing I, I realized is that what was really helped was looking at the unique mechanism of the actual problem that the the prospect is going through and then looking at the solution. So here's what I mean, what I mean by that is like, by the time a prospect, a prospective customer comes to us, it's very unlikely that they've never tried to solve their problem or their pain point before, right? It's very, to use a a weight loss example, because it's so easy. You sell, you sell like a diet supplement or, or a diet guide and, you know, Somebody watches an ad, you know, clicks on it, goes to the page, sees the sales copy. It's very unlikely that person is like who's in their 40s or 50s or whatever is like, oh, you know, I've never tried dieting before, but maybe I'll give it a shot. Right. Like that's not how it works. It's like they've tried so many things they've done. You know, they did Atkins in the 90s. They did keto. Maybe they tried paleo. They've tried calorie counting. They tried fasting. They bought dietary supplements before. They have thought about lap band. They've done so many different things. And so if you're just like, hey, like struggling to lose weight, like new miracle solution helps you lose weight. They're like, go F yourself. Like we've, you know, like we've, I've seen that. I've I've done this dance. I've seen this dance. I've been there, you know, whatever. So what you need to do is, is be able to show them that the real reason they have not achieved their results that they want yet, the desired outcome, the real reason for their problem is something very unique that nobody's ever told them before. And you do that through through additional research on kind of like, hey, what are the real reasons people are struggling to lose weight? And how does this match up with the product and the solution we have? But so, for example, say that, you know, scientists discover that there's a new type of bacteria in the gut and that this bacteria in the gut uh, helps to control your metabolism, right? And that you know, as we get older, we have less of this bacteria in our gut. Uh, you know, according to Harvard and all these studies that you found through your research, and um, you know, because of that, like that—that's one of the issues with metabolism slowing down as we get older. I'm surprised the kernel of truth to that, but I'm kind of just making this up as a hypothetical example, right? So if you find that, and then you're like, okay, well, what about our product? And the product is, say, a dietary guide, and you you look at the ingredients and or, or the the recipes and the foods and things like that, and you realize that you find all these studies that say that some of the Ingredients that are in these recipes help with that bacteria. Help to support the growth of that bacteria in the gut. And you're like, oh wow, okay, cool. So now I have the, the mechanism of the problem, which is that hey, the real reason you've struggled to lose weight is because there's bacteria in your gut that we never knew about until recently, and it helps to govern your metabolism. And so you know, but it, but it goes down as you get older. Like that's your, the problem. But nobody's mentioned this to you before. But here's the good news: is you actually can promote the healthy growth of this bacteria or the growth of this healthy, good bacteria in your gut. And you can do it through just the way you eat. In fact, there's at least 10 foods that help to promote it. Like there's this and this, but we've created a guide that tells you not just what all the foods are, but how to incorporate them into delicious recipes that you can make in 15 minutes at home. Even if you suck and you're bad at cooking, you know, if you suck at cooking, you're bad at cooking, you know, even if you don't have a lot of time, you know, all that, like this is the easiest way. And imagine like what could happen if this, you know, bacteria started to be uh, supported in your gut, could you, potentially you'll start to lose more pounds. Could you feel that your metabolism is speeding up? Well, you know, this is your opportunity by now. So that's like the mechanism of the problem. And then it's very, the solution, which is, you know, tied into our product is very logically connected. But I'll pause because I know it's a lot. I know it's a little bit technical maybe, but hopefully it makes sense why that's so important. We need to show them. And again, this can be done for investing. The real reason that you've never, you know, gotten great returns on investing is because of the traditional brokerage model like, you know, is designed to only promote these types of stocks. But the reality is that growth stocks are over here and nobody talks about them. And here's five growth stocks that can actually help you to, you know, increase your portfolio and create like enough of a retirement account. You know, you can do it for anything.
0: I'm curious, have you ever written copy for some product where you felt like what you were selling, you were having to spin the public on that it really wasn't as good as the amazing copy that you were writing.
1: Yeah. I mean, definitely, especially early on, I think early on you, um, you know, there's times where maybe, you know, maybe it's not usually not super intentional, but more so maybe you're told one thing by the client and then you sort of, you know, look at it and realize, "Eh, like, is this really as great as they, they think it is? You know, for me, when I, I do lots of stuff with like health supplements and today it's like I will only really well, I only work with clients who are making really kind of unique custom formulations of a bunch of like double blind, randomized, placebo controlled studies behind them. They usually have like, you know, doctors and scientists who have helped to formulate them, all this kind of stuff. So I feel really good about, you know, that stuff. but you know, people have been like, hey, we're selling turmeric. And you're like, okay, turmeric's good. But then it's like this kind of on demand turmeric, or, or I did stuff in the CBD space really early on. And CBD is is really powerful, can really help people. But most of it's not absorbed in the body unless like the big thing now CBD is like nano CBD, which is essentially breaking down CBD into these nanoparticles that are easily absorbed into your bloodstream. And I have a couple of friends who are doing those types of things. And, and they're, they're doing great. But they're the stories they hear from people are incredible, right? They're, they're, benefits for like pain stress sleep that is better all of this stuff and it makes sense because cbd there's incredible studies behind cbd but again the problem is most of the capsules your body's just basically you're, you're peeing it out and you're not actually absorbing it so I, I didn't know that at the time but then as you you know start to, and you realize that now you're like okay well i can't write for a cbd company unless like i know that they're doing this nano stuff and and so you know it happens i think the big thing is ultimately it should be on the the business owner and the product owner, right? I think if you, if you knowingly know that's a crap product, you know, you have an ethical decision to make.
0: What advice do you have, Stefan, for college students? One of the many reasons I was so excited about doing this interview with you is that they could freelance. They could get into copywriting, maybe even before they graduate and start earning some money freelancing. Where could they look for jobs right now? Like, I know you went to the Warrior Forum when you were first getting started, but where would you recommend they go if they wanna break into this industry?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I, I will say, I mean, I wish I had known about freelancing when I was in college. Um, I honestly, like, I wish I knew about when I was 18. And I've been, mean, just a, a quick note, I mean, a couple people in our, our community, like Ed Ray, who co-hosts The Road to Billion with me, he's like 19 now, but he was started writing and, and doing marketing when he was like 15. We have a, a woman in our mastermind, uh, Kimmy Doo. She's 16. I don't think she's turned 17 yet. She... Is she got a retain? Jay, who I mentioned with Credit Secrets, like she's on a, a very healthy five figure, or at least a mid four figure retainer. I think she makes you know, over ten thousand dollars a month. She's sixteen. I know Ariba Ahmed is in Pakistan. She is trying to go get uh, her medical, going through medical school. I think she's like nineteen, and she's making over ten thousand dollars a month. I mean, the, the point is, it's just crazy. I'm not. I'm not trying to promise everybody's going to make ten thousand dollars a month immediately and stuff like that. But the point is, it's like. I, there's so many young people who are just having a, a tremendous success. I mean, even but again for me, at that if I had made like two thousand dollars a month freelancing when I was in college, I would be like, this is incredible, right? So I really think freelancing and copywriting is just so powerful, and it does give you so many opportunities. And, and as you're gonna so to the people who are about to graduate college and, and things like that, I'd, I mean, start dipping your toes in now. I'd go to Upwork, which is a online freelancing platform. You know, create a profile. You can watch like videos on YouTube or whatever about hey, how to create a profile on Upwork, how to like optimize it, stuff like that. And then you know, if you if you're really interested in, in copy, you can join groups like we have the Justin and Stefan Talk Copy Facebook group. We've got about seven thousand people in it. It's really about copywriting, direct response marketing, but it's also a really awesome community. I mean, you you'll, and and an important thing too of copywriting is you might feel not might you almost for sure will feel overwhelmed. So to close the loop on the poker story, right? That same the girl at the table, I ended up moving to Florida for I took one last job. I didn't I didn't hate the job, but you know, I was making two hundred dollars a day, which was great for my mid-20s. But she would make like a thousand dollars a day at home, like drinking beer in her pajamas or whatever. And I'm like, man, I want to do that. And so that's why I originally posted in Warrior Form and and, but I had her as, as a mentor and then you know, we ended up like living together right away. Basically, we moved in together, and then she ultimately became my wife, and now she's we're, we're married, and we have a three-year-old daughter. So, because of of her, Laura, my wife, I kind of had like a translator to the world of direct response and all that, which was really helpful because there's a lot of acronyms and stuff. People are like, you know, what's the CMV? And like, oh, the CPA is this, but the AOV is this, and you're like, what? Spanish, right? Feels like a, a, a totally foreign yeah. language. Yeah. yeah, Greek. Yeah, it's all Greek to me, right? And. So, but the big thing for me would be like, don't stress about that too much, you know, just sort of just read stuff, immerse, put yourself out there, you know, share like in our, if you come to our Facebook group, be like, Hey, I'm, you know, whoever, I'm a college student. I'm about to graduate. I'm just starting to learn about the road of direct response. And I'm so excited to learn more. Like, you know, if anyone has any resources that you think I should, I should check out whatever, just by posting and sharing the group, our group, especially is is so supportive. I'm not saying that. In a self serving way, it's just a very um, intentional thing where there are those communities out there that are very snarky and very, like, you know, for new people, everyone's arrogant and it's like all about status. Like, I've been in the group for five years, so like I'm an OG. And you know what? It's like, we're not like that. It, like, we've got like people from like Nigeria, like Italy, I mean, all over the world, like just coming in India, and everyone's like, hey, we're so happy to have you here. Here's how, how can we help you? But the people who post and are active and are part of the community, opportunities come for them like every time. And then they they get writing opportunities. They get their breaks. They get gigs. So that and then Upwork is a really proven place. Those are the two places I would look.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. So maybe we should also close the loop on the BC part just real quick.
1: (laughs) I can be quick with that. Yeah. So B is for brief. The brief is really like a questionnaire that I answer before I start writing. So the cool thing about the brief is about half of it you already have the answers to from doing the research and the mechanism. So it's like you know who's your who's the market? What are their pain points? Their their short term and long term pain points? What's like your big promise? And and not for your product, but for the copy you're writing, like especially for longer form copy. It's like you know you're making a pro- the promise in, in the beginning of it is not I'm going to share a product with you and this product's going to do this. You don't even talk about the product. For a long time. The promise is like inside this letter, inside this video, I'm gonna reveal the real reason why you've been struggling with XYZ, plus how you can quickly you know change things by spending no more than 10 minutes a day or an hour a day or whatever it is, and you can do it without needing to spend a fortune on this, this, or this or whatever the promise is, like I'm gonna show you inside this video or letter how to get the outcome you want. That's basically the promise. And then it's like what's the what's the product? Because you're like, oh well the product is you know a guide for Real estate, people getting into real estate. Like, oh, cool. So is that what you're going to say in your actual copy? Are you going to say, hey, it's a guide for people wanting to get into real estate. So buy it now. Like, no, you're going to be like introducing the first, you know, a breakthrough guide for real estate investing written by so-and-so that shows you step-by-step how to, you know, start to develop an investment portfolio, even if you only have $1,000 to invest or $500 to invest, no experience. Like, in the first section, you're going to see how to do this, this, this. Like, you're going to say all of that as you're selling the guide, So in the brief, when it's like, what's the product, you're actually going to write out that part, like in copy format, like you're going to write out what the product is and the background story, same thing. What's the background story? Who's the spokesperson? How did they discover it? So you're basically, you're answering those questions, you're writing out in copy format, because then when you get to see, which is copy, a lot of your work's already done for you. Because in copy, the the outline, especially for a sales letter is the same every time. So it's like the lead, which is where you're calling out the pain point, you're promising solution, you're talking about some credibility, you're teasing the unique mechanism, which you have because you did M, the pain point you have because of research, you know, the credibility is part of the background stuff that you did in the brief. And then, you know, you're basically from there going into the background story. Like, okay, like me or someone like me, someone I know used to be in pain, just like you are. Here's the story. They, it sucked. They struggled. They looked for solutions. Those solutions were not adequate then they had a breakthrough. They met somebody or they, they found something online or they traveled somewhere and, and realized that there was a better way. And they realized that the real reason for their problem was actually this. And that goes to the unique mechanism of the problem. They explain the unique mechanism of the problem. And then you're like, oh, and once they discovered that, they realize that the solution could be as simple as this. So now we're at the unique mechanism of the solution. We're explaining how, like, you know, if this is a problem, here's how you solve it. And so after that, we have the product build and reveal. So now that we knew the solution, we had to package it all together. How do I bring this to the public? And so through trial and error or working with experts or whatever it is, you know, and eventually we were able to create product, introducing product. And now we get to what's called the close. And the close is where you're like talking about the features and benefits of the product, which again, you wrote in the brief already. You wrote the background story in the brief already. The mechanism of the problem and solution you did when you were doing the mechanism part. You know, we already talked about all this stuff in the lead. And then the close is very formulaic and you're just like after the product stuff you're just basically saying like other stuff there's other options but they're not as good you already know that this should cost a ton of money but it's not going to cost as much as you know you think and the reason why is because i want to get into your hands or whatever the reason is so you know go ahead and click the button and buy now and there's a few other little elements so it's the lead background story unique mechanism of the problem unique mechanism of the solution product build up and reveal close, and then you can throw in some FAQs at the end for people who may have missed something. And in my course, RMBC, I give you like a, like, I don't know what, like 40 point outline was really paint by numbers. It's like, if you do all these things in this order, it's basically impossible to write a crappy sales letter. I'm not saying it's going to be the best sales letter ever, but it's going to be better than what, you know, the vast majority of people are writing because you've done the right structure, but it's all based on already having done RM and B before. And that's why the system works so well.
0: Awesome. So let's flash back really quickly, Stefan, to when you were in college. As you mentioned, you went to the University of West Florida and you were a philosophy major and you graduated in 2010. Did you have any clue what you wanted to do when you graduated?
1: Yeah, kind of. But it's not what I'm doing. I mean, I had, I had but my clue was I. I guess my junior year. Well, yeah, I decided like, well, you know, philosophy majors. The one kind of high paying thing for a philosophy major, high paying job, besides you know, becoming a professor and getting tenure and stuff, which I thought about doing because I really did love philosophy, but was become a lawyer. So I, I you know studied for the LSAT, took the LSAT, applied to schools, got into like a couple, accepted at the University of Miami, their law school. I was already in, in Northwest Florida, but you know, I loved Florida and tropical weather. I still, I love warm weather. accepted, you know, graduated college and thought I was gonna do that. But then the, the weeks after I graduated, I had this sort of deep, thank God I was a philosophy major because I had this deep sort of introspective moment. I kind of thought about the reasons for doing it. And I was doing it for making lots of money and then for status, because then like, I, you know, oh, I'm a lawyer. I'm doing something with my life. I'm, you know, that's really respectable, right. To be a lawyer. It's like, people are like, oh, wow, well, lawyer, like you're going to make money. You're, you know, but, but like, I didn't really want to be a lawyer. I didn't really want to go study the law and I wasn't doing it because I was excited about the prospects of being a lawyer. I was doing it because it sounded good and impressive to people when I talked to them and I could make money. And you know, going back to my, my Boulder days and, you know, I kind of picked Boulder over if I, it was that or San Diego state being in San, and I was in San Diego and if I got to San Diego state, I probably could have kept playing poker and things may have been different, but I Boulder was the kind of better school and I sort of picked it for that reason. But I just thought back to that. And I'm like, I don't want a repeat of that. I don't want to go to law school and after a semester or maybe a year I drop out and now I've got, you know, God knows how much like student debt and, you know, like, I just, it didn't make sense. And so I, I decided not to. The other thing I kind of thought about was, you know, wanting to be like a like a hipster, like novelist, writer type person. And, you know, I thought maybe that was a, a path for me. Yeah, neither, I didn't do either of those things.
0: So, yeah. I, and I think that is, that's, again, a quintessential experience that many young people have, where it's like, You you look at other people and there's this yearning, yearning for status, yearning for financial stability, security, even wealth. And yet you see the only path or, you know, you see limitations in your options. And one of many things that I try to teach the students that I work with is that instead of thinking of your major as like the tiny house that you're going to be forced to live in for the rest of your life. It's the foundation of a professional skyscraper that you're building over the course of your life with each new job and each new career, adding a new floor in that skyscraper. And when you disaggregate the skills And you take yourself out of the mindset of like, in my case, I was a poli sci major. You were a philosophy major, history major, math major. When you disaggregate it and then look at what are my hard skills and my soft skills? What am I good at? What's my superpower? What Dr. Howard Gardner, the professor of psychology at Harvard University, came up with, he said, Forget about the IQ test. The IQ test is too narrow. There are actually eight different types of intelligences. It's everything from, you know, I'm a great communicator. I'm a great writer. I'm a great dancer or musician or artist. Or you start like looking at what makes you special because we all have our superpowers. And then you add that to your interests. And that's the path to go in. That is where you go. So there's there's a lot more to that. But I think that's just another example of where you fortunately didn't get stuck. You didn't like fall into the trap of fear and say, well, oh, my God, I don't want to take a risk. And not do what is the safer thing to do. Go to law school. You leapt into the great unknown.
1: 100%. I, I love all of that. I have a couple of thoughts. I mean, one is it's, it's, it's hard, like you said, to not fall into the kind of comparison trap. And it's even harder to have like Instagram and social media and everybody is presenting their most idealized version of their life to the to everyone else all the time. It's like we're we're putting on like a front like constantly. Right but the comparison trap just does not kind of be motivating on some level. Sure. Right. Being like, Oh wow, this person has nice stuff. I want nice stuff. Okay. Like sure. But you just spend less time comparing yourself to others and more time on just improving yourself and, and, and bettering yourself and, and, and cultivating your skills. And I think you're going to you know go way further. And then with the personality test stuff, I mean, or sorry, the, um, IQ test stuff. I mean, like, just for people watching or listening, you know, like, I'm pretty convinced I have like a learning disability with math. I just um, like business math, obviously, I know. Oh, I've learned how to to you know be good with that because I've had to. But like, I just you know sucked at math. Like, C student, could not. Just was never interested in it. I mean, I was a huge part of it.
0: I think and, it's called dysgraphia. There's actually a name for it. Yeah. So we all know dyslexia. That's the issue where you're reversing letters with your reading and other related things. But dysgraphia could be that, you know, the way that your brain is processing numbers is just a little jumbled and you have to learn other ways around it.
1: That sounds right, honestly. And and maybe I could, you know, at some point in my life, I kind of want to figure that out just for the purely from an enjoyment intellectual challenge type of way. But I mean, my, my LSAT is out of like 180. I got like a 160, which is pretty good, but it was basically all on the like I don't know, basically not the logic games. Logic games I just tanked on because logic games is the most mathematical kind of part. And I just always have sucked at logic games. And, you know, if if I took an IQ test, I... I've only taken one one time recently because my friend was like, oh, you know, I bet you get a really high score. And I was a little bit drunk when I took it, honestly. And so I got like an okay. It was definitely better than average, but it was nothing like outstanding. And I I would bet if I did that again today, I wouldn't get that high of a score on my IQ test. Right. My IQ is probably it's above average, but it's not like it's nothing in the top, you know, even 10 percent even. And yet I've had this tremendous success. And, you know, going back to like my friends, other friends who went to law school, like, my one good friend from, from elementary school went to law school and was was one of the reasons I wanted to do it. And you know, he makes a decent living, but the dude has, like, three kids now. And I know he's just working. Like, he, he works, you know, he doesn't see him in the morning. He comes home at 6. He sees him for, like, an hour, and he works until, like, 12 o'clock at night. And he barely ever sees his kids. And he's tired all the time. And, and you know, yeah, he's making money, but it's like, damn, that, you know, is not a life I would have wanted. I'm so thankful that I didn't try to follow this for status, you know? So yeah, I just want to share that stuff. And then and, on and, and the last note, I mean, whatever your major is and you, you know, you go get a job somewhere and then what's going to happen is you're going to meet people in other departments and who in other roles and they're doing other things. And you're going to find some of that interesting. And then someone like a manager or somebody's going to be like, Hey, can you help with this one thing? Or does anybody want to help? And you're going to be like, oh, okay, I'll help with that. And then you're going to find out you're actually pretty good at it. And you're going to do more of it. And then probably two or three years or a year or whatever from when you started in that job, you'd be doing something entirely different anyways, most of the time. Right. And that happens all the time. And there's other opportunities. And then you realize, Oh, I actually really like this and I'm good at it. And then you're going to leave that job and go somewhere else. And you get hired for that skill that you learned on the job anyway, that had nothing to do with your major or, you know, like, again, the skills from your major will have helped you along the path, but like that happens all of the time. So you just like, it's just not static. You don't leave college. Right. And you go into the workforce and, you know, you studied marketing. So now you're in marketing and that's what you're going to do for the next 50 years. Like maybe, but probably you're going to discover like sub niches like analytics. Oh, I really think analytics are interesting. And suddenly you're an analytics person or whatever it is. You just just don't worry so much about like the next 10 years. Like just, you know, like things are going to change and that's good.
0: Oh, my God. Can I just say like I'm getting choked up listening to you because you are playing back almost exactly what I tell my students. I actually wrote a post about this on LinkedIn recently in which I said, don't think about your career as if you were a chef following a recipe like you're making lasagna And you go into the refrigerator and you're like getting out the mozzarella and you're getting out your ricotta and you're going into the cupboard and getting your tomato sauce and the other ingredients. And you follow step by step by step by step. You stick it in the oven at 375 for 45 minutes and voila, there's your career. Instead, think of it like you're a mad scientist. You're in the laboratory. You're like throwing shit in a test tube. And some of it blows up in your face and you got all the soot all over. And it's good because you're going to try something else because we're all unique. And it's a unique formula that we have to create ourselves by doing. And so Instead of freaking out and thinking like, oh my God, I'm graduating and I don't know what I want to do with my capital C career for the rest of my life. No, like take a deep breath and just ask yourself, what do I want to do for the next year? What do I want to try? Because exactly what you said, Stefan, exactly. The magic of life happens. Maybe it's your supervisor who asks you to try something else. And initially you're like, that doesn't sound interesting at all to me. And yet you do it and you realize, oh, my God, I'm actually good at this. I actually kind of maybe I do like it or you don't like that. But you go to a party and your buddy starts talking about what he's doing or what she's doing, and you're like, that sounds pretty cool. I want to try that. That is what happens in life. It's iterative, it's organic.
1: I totally agree. I love, I love that the way of looking at it as a chef or some mad scientists. And I think another you know, part of it is every Success. I mean, for speaking directly to the college students and and really anybody, honestly, but but hopefully it resonates because I think this is completely related to what you just said. We think the stakes are are so high all the time, but the reality is every single very successful person that I know and you know, I mean, or that I have mutual friends, I have mutual friends with like Elon Musk, right? I'm not friends with Elon Musk, like I like really great, right, right? But like the, the commonality for all this stuff is like. They love failing and they embrace failing. They don't look at it as failure. They think of it as like stepping stones, you know, like every failure gets you closer to a victory. Like and without failures, you can't have those wins. You've got to kind of you've got to go through the losses to get to the win. And again, if you look at it like giving up on something after a year and you think, oh, I'm a failure. I gave up. or This wasn't the right thing, you know, and you beat yourself up about it. There no upside comes from it. But if you're like, oh, that's amazing. I can check that off the list. Don't like that. Now I can move on to something new, right? Like in the, going back to a scientist. Right, if, if if science worked where like every hypothesis you had was just like born out and was correct, then like yeah, you know, we would already be I don't know what flying around the entire you know galaxy, if not universe. And but that's not how it works. It's like you have to go through all of the failed experiments to you know find that eureka moment, the moment where the test tube lights up gold. And so you know be okay with that. It's totally fine. You're supposed to fail. Again, the most successful people fail constantly. And they love it. They're like, this is so great that I failed. I know I've learned. I learned what can I take from this and now incorporate it the next thing that I do. That is the way you need to look at your life and your career and everything else. And if you do that, you will be light years ahead of all the other people who let short term quote unquote failures define them. And like, don't be that person.
0: So beautiful. And I mean, just to kind of flesh out the failure piece, because I was fired. My contract wasn't renewed after I, I had worked for CNN for 14 years. I'd been a journalist for 20. And the new president of CNN just didn't like me. I wasn't his cup of tea or his cup of coffee. And it was crushing at the time because. I had only ever been a journalist and my whole identity was tied up with it. And I thought about going into like working for another television organization, you know, another network. And and then I was like, no, I don't want to do that because actually at the time, my son was only three and a half years old. And I thought it's a terrible life for work-life balance. So I'm going to try public relations. And looking back on that fail In my life, getting fired, it was such a gift because it allowed me, actually it forced me to pivot. And you're going to find the same thing too. Like the fails that you have that could be entrepreneurial or it could be getting fired, Like go, laid off in the time of the coronavirus. Lots of people are getting furloughed or laid off. It hurts like hell. Absolutely. But it will be something that you look back on as having been an opportunity for you. I believe that. I really do believe it. So what for you, Stefan, would you say was the fail that you would like to share with our young audience and most importantly, it isn't the fail, as we said. It's the lesson that you got from that fail, and how you were able to push through the pain and persevere.
1: Yeah. Oh man, there are there's so many, which is great. And you know, it, I don't know. Yeah, great actually. Like going back to dropping out of Boulder after a semester, right? I mean, it's, it's relevant to your audience, and it's true because I felt like a failure, and I'm back at a movie theater and. Like I said, just just kind of depressed, and then started you know got involved in a music startup that I got really involved in, and that was my identity for a year and a half. And then that failed. Took on other jobs that I kind of quit after a couple months, and those are all kind of failures. Yeah, I mean, but like each failure again was a stepping stone, you know. And and without those failures, I wouldn't have ultimately gotten to where where I am today. And then in in you know more modern times with business, I you know I, I started an agency like a marketing agency in 2000, I think it was 18 that actually did, I was looking at tax returns, So like it did like 7 million in the first year of revenue and you're like, wow, you know, awesome. But I made all these mistakes. The model actually sucked and I didn't realize it at the time. And then all of 2019 was basically me trying to make stuff right for clients where we had dropped the ball and screwed up and all these sorts of things. That felt like a failure. I felt like I was stuck in this agency that I hated for a year but I didn't give up on people. I basically made sure that what we found is like we were really good at some parts of the business, but not so good at other parts of the business. And so, you know, people just, not every client was happy. We got success for some clients, but some we probably over promised and underdelivered. And I could have been like, Oh, you know, tough stuff there, but they'd given us a lot of money. And so I then had to figure out how to actually get them an ROI. Like my goal was that every single person got an ROI on their investment. If the, the business kind of failed. I should, I you know, closed it down, but it helped me build my character, it helped me know what kind of person I am. A lot of people who I helped ended up then coming and hiring me again in the future because I hadn't abandoned them. It showed my character. It helped my reputation, frankly, because people, nobody said a bad thing about me because I had done something very hard. And, and it helped me to realize that I don't want to own an agency, which is a huge thing. Because then I went from there to copy accelerator of my partner, which is also, you know, whatever, six or $7 million a year business, but way more profitable way less work, way more enjoyable. I'm teaching and changing lives, but I wouldn't have gone to copy accelerator probably if that agency hadn't been this kind of disaster before. So it's a nonstop process. I think that as you level up your failures, if anything, they get bigger and that's a good thing, right? You you want your failures to get bigger and bigger. You want to fail on a, on a larger scale and stage, especially as an entrepreneur and just keep going. Like if I, the day I stop failing is just, Will suck, you know, I don't want to, I, like I talked to a friend at dinner and I, I forget exactly the context, but it was like, I had had one business that was like, I lost like $200,000. Right. And then a few years later, I had a business where we lost like $2 million. And I was like, man, I hope the next time I lose $20 million. Cause that means I'm really doing a lot of stuff. Right. And I think that's sort of the attitude to have.
0: I love that. Have you heard of Spartan races? I have. Yeah. Okay. Joe Desina who founded Spartan Races, very interesting guy, interviewed him on Time for Coffee. He and a client of his, they end their phone call saying, I hope you have a terrible day. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a similar philosophy. So, Just one final question for you. If you could go back to the University of West Florida and do it all over again, but based on the incredible wisdom that you have right now. What advice would you give yourself?
1: That's a great question. I feel like I did a really good job there because I really did embrace, I embraced learning and I was writing and following my, my passions and stuff. I mean, I think the one honestly it would have been to get into freelancing and to look at it and realize that that's a real thing. Cause I mean, I remember the first, when I was going to take my last corporate job and Telling my mom, and my mom hates the story because she like she denies it. But I, I I know what happened. This is after my dad passed. I'm sitting at a table with my mom and my cousin, and I'm like, I think I could maybe make a, a living, like full time, just like like writing like online for people. And they both were like, "You're an idiot. Go take this job." Like, you know, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh, like okay, I guess they're right." And you know, then I went and took that job and quit like a couple months later and never looked back. But I guess what it's hard for me to remember that, that this the way I felt was like God. If only there was some way to like make money without having to go get a a job I'm going to hate. That would be incredible. And there was, and it was freelancing. If I had done that, then I I love Pensacola, Florida. I mean, the main reason I left is because there's just not a lot of jobs there besides like hospitality and tourism and stuff like that. And I mean, again, it all worked out. I'm I'm glad that I left because it all led me to where I am today but it would have given me more options. I wouldn't have felt like I had to leave right away. I wouldn't have felt like I couldn't be in this place that I loved because I couldn't find a job. I wouldn't have felt this immense pressure. I wouldn't have had to feel like a failure because I couldn't get a job as a philosophy major during the middle of like the great recession, all that stuff. And I just could have been way more, I could have been ahead of the curve. If I had started freelancing, you know, then in 2008 or nine, then maybe even further along today. I'm mean, I'm not, it's hard because I'm so happy with the way everything worked out. But I really think like exploring that and and just be taking action. Don't wait. Don't wait for opportunities to come to you, like make your own opportunities. I mean, I could have, you know, I was waiting to find a job, waiting for somebody to hire me and I could have just made my own jobs. I could have gone into this world of freelancing and that would have been really cool.
0: Stefan has individually written 50 plus direct response marketing pieces that have grossed a combined total of nearly $700 million. As we've alluded to, he's also created a company that generated over $120 million in revenue for one single client in its first year. He's built a health and wellness company that's grossed over 23 million in a single year, and he's a minority owner. In a sports agency with players in the NFL and Major League Baseball, he's also the host of The Road to a Billion, which is a call-in radio show podcast, which you should check out. We'll have a link in show notes. And, of course, he is the founder of the amazing RMBC Method. Again, link in show notes. Stefan, thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. This was off the charts. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Andre. It was a blast. I really enjoyed sharing. And for all of your listeners and viewers, you know, thank you for taking the time to hear me talk. Hopefully it's valuable. Feel free to, you know, find me on the internets and, um, you know, I'm happy to try and support you in any way I can.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee. 24-7,